thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. This is Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Tony Gillam. Let's uh, bring in Tony from Westcliff, down in Deep Sussex. Evening to you, Tony. Good evening, sir. How are you? All right. I'm very fit and fine. Oh, good. Now, what's this about gout that you want to ask Dr Chris about? Well, the doctor reckons I've got it. And what is it exactly? Something to do with salts or something? Hello, Tony. Hello. Uh, yes, um, gout is, well, previously a disease of the upper classes, and these days it's actually much more common because we're all eating better. It's a disease of excess, although it can be caused by other things as well. It's caused by a high level of something called uric acid in uh-huh. your bloodstream. And uric acid is a breakdown product of things like DNA. So when your body is breaking down old cells and recycling some of the constituents in the cells, one of the things it produces as a, as a byproduct of that recycling is uric acid. Now, uric acid is normally very carefully controlled in the bloodstream, but sometimes if it gets a bit high, then it can get into a joint and the uric acid in the joint joins together with other uric acid molecules and you get a crystal of uric acid and you get urate crystals in the joint and they're very, very painful. For some reason, and we don't know exactly why, the joint between your big toe and the rest of your foot is the most commonly affected joint. And what usually happens is people turn up with a very hot, painful, red and swollen joint which comes on quite abruptly and it can last for several days, and people won't let you touch it because it's that painful. Mm. The treatment for it is a drug called allopurinol, which um, blocks an enzyme in the body called xanthine oxidase, and that's the enzyme that breaks down things like DNA and produces uric acid. And so if you take this allopurinol, then it damps down the action of that enzyme, stops you producing uric acid, and as a result, you don't get gout again. Frankly, from what you said, Doctor, it doesn't sound like I have got it. If I take an anti-inflammatory, it seems to help like mad. It's much, much better. Anti-inflammatory wouldn't help that, would it? Oh, they do, actually. When people have got it, once people have actually got the the, um, case of gout with the swollen, painful, red-hot joint, then the only thing you can really do is to take anti-inflammatories, and things like ibuprofen are very good because they damp down the immune system and stop the inflammation, and then you can start taking the allopurinol, which helps to prevent it happening the next time. And it came on literally one day it was not there, and the next day it was. Yeah, it does sound like it. There's another related condition, which is called pseudo-gout, but that's something different. That's a, that's a different crystal. It's, that's linked to calcium rather than uric acid. But uh, they say oh they, well. both, they both respond to anti-inflammatories. So good luck, Tony. Thanks very much indeed, Doctor. OK, there's Tony Westcliff. Our first question for uh, Dr Chris Smith, the naked scientist tonight. How are you on radio astronomy, Chris? Let's have a go. All right, then. A question that's coming on the text. Jake is on the A14. Uh, He says, uh, can Dr Chris (laughs) explain the difference between the radio telescope near Cambridge and the one at Jodrell Bank? I assume it's something more than just size, is it here, Chris? 
Well, size is important because the bigger your dish is, then the more signals that you can pick up from outer space. So the basis of radio astronomy is that there's not just information in the visible light spectrum, because light is a very big continuum. There's a small part of light which we can see, but then there are other forms of light which we can't, which also contain information. So if you think of the light we can see, that ranges from very blue, purpley light through at short wavelengths through to red light. We can see that, but then at shorter wavelengths you have X-rays and gamma rays. That's ionising radiation and ultraviolet.、Mm-hmm. At longer wavelengths you've got infrared and then microwaves and radio waves. Very very long wavelengths. We can't see those either, but they're still forms of light. So if you have a telescope which is looking up into the sky. Which is detecting those radio waves, then you can still get information from things that are going on up beyond Earth's atmosphere in those different regimes. These、mm, either、mm. either out into the infrared, or if you want to look into the powerful things like gamma rays and gamma ray bursts when stars blow themselves to pieces, you need different types of telescopes. And so, a big dish is important. But one way that scientists have got round the size problem is instead of having one massive dish like Arecibo, for instance, which is that massive construction, what you can do is to have lots of little dishes in one massive great array. And so, effectively, you've got quite good resolving power, but you haven't had to produce one continuous reflector, if you like. Ah, right. I see. And what sort of information are these telescopes gathering then? Being, I mean, you say it's hidden in these things, the light that we can't see. What what is actually being received? Well, let's take a good example of something, say, a star. If you have a star which gets to the end of its life, then the star produces a supernova, and a supernova is where the star cools down, and the, the nuclear reaction which is sustaining the star. Is reduced, and as a result, the star begins to collapse on itself. But as it collapses on itself, this revs up the fusion reaction even more. The pressure goes up, and so the star has a very vigorous reaction, which then blows itself to pieces. And that's the the death of the star. Just as that's happening, it produces an intense beam of light rays in the X rays. Or gamma rays, and sometimes in the UV. And there's a satellite up up in space, for instance, called Swift, which is watching out for these gamma ray bursts. So they can be used if you can detect these gamma rays, which obviously we can't see, but things that are sensitive to gamma rays can. You can then focus all your telescopes, which look for light, onto the bit of the sky which has got these events going on, and then you can see the other events unfolding. So there are lots of things that happen and produce. Forms of radiation that we can't see, but which nonetheless are there, and if you can detect those, you can see them. And what about the theory that some of these telescopes can actually see back in time events that happened millions of years ago? Is that because it's taken that long for the signal to reach Earth? That's correct.、Um, we can see back about twelve and a half billion years, really,、wow. in terms of the age of the universe. The universe is just under fourteen billion years. That's the best estimate we have. So some of the first stars that existed about thirteen billion years ago. Their, their light is only just reaching some vestiges of of our cosmic neighbourhood. So, with very very powerful telescopes, you can see those traces of light. And the thing about that light is, and、um, the reason we know how long it's taken to get to us and how far it's come, is because as light travels through space,、um, as space is expanding, because we know the universe is expanding, the light, if you like, gets stretched out,、oh, and see, as a、yeah. result, the light gets so-called red shifted because the wavelength of the light gets bigger and bigger and bigger because the light waves are being stretched, and as a result, the starlight, we know what the light should be in terms of its wavelength. It's, it ends up being much longer than it should be, so we can use that red shift to work out basically how far that light's come through space, and therefore how long ago it left where it came from. And we know how fast light travels, so you can date and age the star that it came from. How fascinating! And just does it work in reverse? Could signals given off by Earth, if indeed Earth does give off these signals, be interpreted by perhaps intelligent life somewhere else?
Well, light is radio waves, and so the light that's leaving Earth, the radio waves, the signals we're producing, are going out from planet Earth as almost like a, an envelope or a shroud around the planet, a bubble, if you like, which is probably at the moment about 100 light years away from the Earth. So it's about 100 light years in radius, this bubble that's spreading out, because we've been emitting radio signals ever since Marconi got the, the whole thing going mm. about 100 years ago. Um, that means that literally 100 light years is nothing in space terms. The next galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy, and that's a few million light years away. So um, we have to wait a little while before anyone who's not in our, in our immediate galaxy can get those signals. The Milky Way galaxy, about 100 thousand light years across so it's going to take a little while before our signals have got right across our own galaxy let alone anywhere else wow. and they're also not that strong when you think how how powerful a star blowing up is yeah <laughs> all right chris let's have another medical one uh, a question which has come from another tony in walpole st peter He's, he asks why does his grandson uh, get a pain in his forehead when he eats freezing cold ice cream. I can relate to this. I get that pain in yeah, my head Yeah, ice well. cream headache. That yeah. is terrible, isn't it? Yeah. It's not just ice cream. It's anything cold can do it to me, in fact. And there's a number of theories about this. One of them is that it's to do with the blood flow to your brain, which is that when you have cold air coming into your mouth, there is some kind of thermostat or some kind of thermo regulation system in place which mm -hmm. is detecting the temperature of the roof of the mouth and the the head and your sinuses mm -hmm. and it infers from that how warm or cold your head must be and it opens and closes blood vessels supplying your head accordingly in order to boost the supply of warm blood or shut down the supply of warm blood accordingly to get the temperature right so if you put something very very cold in your mouth because the roof of your mouth next stop up from there is quite literally into your brain mm -hmm. then what that what could be happening is that your brain thinks it's too cold and you boost the blood flow through there the arteries open up painfully for a fraction of a second you get that intense pain and then when things warm up again everything's okay. The other possibility that people have suggested is that this is a form of referred pain. Now, the nervous system in some parts of the body isn't very precise in how it localises where a sensation is coming from. So, for instance, when people have a heart attack, for example, they often say, I can feel pain going down my left arm or up into my neck. Mm -hmm. Now, why should the pain, which is actually coming from the middle of your chest, be referred down your arm and up into your neck? Well, it's all to do with how your body develops as an embryo. And viscera, the bits of the body inside that run you, they don't need to have very accurate localization of where they, where they are hurting when something's wrong with them because there's not really that much evolutionary benefit to that. You don't need to swat a fly on your heart, for example, so you don't need to know where the fly is in terms of that sort of mm. localization. And as a result, when you get pain in the heart, then the bits of the body that are connected to it in terms of how it developed in the first place when you were an embryo, they tend to also sense the pain. So that's why the pain is felt in the arm and in the neck. Now, in the same way, when you have ice cream headache, it could be that the pain which you're sensing, the cold temperature, is actually referred pain coming from the nerves which supply your sinuses and the roof of your mouth. And some of those nerve supplies are less accurate in localising where the problem is. And so you think you've got pain coming from the front of your head and in fact you haven't. Now the jury's out in terms of which of those two explanations it is. It could be a combination of both actually, but it's certainly a problem. Best way to cure it is actually to stop eating the cold thing and then take some deep breaths of the nice warm air in the room and that warms things up. Or just clamp your mouth down and push your tongue against the roof of your mouth because that warms things up as well. Oh, is this the same sort of theory um, that occurs uh, sometimes when you go to the dentist and you think you've got a, 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 an ache coming from an upper tooth when in fact it's a lower tooth? Normally the most common reason that people 
people get funny tooth pains is one sensitive teeth and this is just because well there's a number of reasons why you can get sensitive teeth but this is where you've got stimulation of the nerve supply to the teeth by things like hot and cold foods the other reason that you can get toothache when in fact you haven't is if you've had an infection in your sinuses recently if you have a cold or something then the roots to the nerve to the teeth in your upper mandible and your upper jaw they run through the floor of the maxillary sinus now the maxillary sinus is effectively the cheek so if you were to sort of draw a triangle which goes from the bridge of your nose across under your eye down to the edge of your jaw and then back up to where you started that sort mm. of triangle behind there is a big sinus the the bone is hollow and that's your maxillary sinus and there's a connection between that into your and into your nose so when you get a bad cold you get virus in that sinus which inflames the tissue and causes snot to build up and mucus and can also get secondary bacterial infections, that's sinusitis. And because the nerve roots run through the floor of that sinus, the inflammation irritates the nerve roots, and as a result you can feel that you've got toothache because those nerves are normally supplying the teeth, and the body thinks these nerves are irritated, they're firing off, therefore there must be pain in the teeth, when in reality it's not, it's a problem in the sinus. And that's another example of referred pain. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> got another caller now, Chris. Trucker Gaz is here. Hello, Trucker Gaz. What's your question, then? Hi, Dr Chris. Well, I'm a hay fever sufferer. I have been for many years now. I'm quite well travelled, but this is the only country I suffer from hay fever. This year, mm. particularly, has been quite a hard year for me. I've been to see my GP to change my medication, so I was on Telfast, 120 milligrams. Uh, oh, I went to see my GP, must have been, well, a week, a week and a half ago now. And he's up to my medication to 180 milligrams of fexofenadine, I think it's called. Tofenadine, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Telfast again. I'm taking between like 8 and 10 a day, but I'm only meant to be taking one. Can yes. this do me any harm? If so, what other medication can I take to sort of combat this hay fever? Yeah, it's really difficult this year. Uh, I get a little bit of hay fever. I normally just have a, sniff and a sniffle and occasionally my eyes itch a bit. But this year has been absolutely terrible. And I was talking to, to all the people at work and, and they're all suffering as well this year. And yeah. I don't think it's that we've all suddenly got worse allergies. I think probably the, the climatic conditions this year have been just right for getting lots and lots of pollen up all at once because what you need is a nice wet spring and then lots of water to go into the ground so the plants can grow uninhibited and unrestricted by water. And then you need lots of warmth because then the plants just grow like bilio and they all come into flower simultaneously and then they all produce lots and lots of pollen and the worst culprits are usually things like grasses and cereals because they produce huge amounts of pollen and they're also cultivated Cambridgeshire very arable region lots and lots of um, plants in fields so lots and lots of pollen going up and we've had perfect conditions to keep the pollen in the air it hasn't been very wet because rain tends to bring the pollen back down and damp everything down and it, it's been very dry so I think probably it's the environmental conditions that are doing this the, the drugs we have for hay fever fall into two categories really there's prevention and then there is kind of cure to a certain extent right. um, the the sort of prevention side of it is things like steroids people can get uh, you can get inhalers for your nose and these are uh, just a simple steroid which damps down the immune system by preventing you from getting the inflammation that goes with hay fever okay. so if you use that before you're exposed to the pollen that can be helpful 
Um, there are also some antihistamines. This is what you're talking about with terfenidine. That's one of them. Uh, okay. These antihistamines, what they do is to block the action of histamine, as the name suggests. Histamine yeah. is an inflammatory chemical which is produced by a, a kind of cell called a mast cell. So if you look un in your skin or in any part of your body in, where there's an, a contact between you and the outside world, you have in your tissue these mast cells, and they're big, bulky cells, and they're crammed with histamine, and they're decorated on the outside by antibodies called IgE antibodies. Oh, That's right. the class of antibody. And they look a bit like a Second World War marine mine, if you remember those spiky meatball-like things yeah, that yeah. when a ship touches, it goes off. That's well, right. it's not that dissimilar, actually, because as soon as some pollen gets latched onto by one of these antibodies on the surface, the antibody tells the mast cell, hey, I've just locked onto some pollen, you better get excited. And the mast cell then pumps out all this histamine, and the histamine goes on to all of the cells locally. It goes on to nerve fibres, which are itch-sensitive. So you have a class of nerve fibres that signal itch, so that's why you start to itch. Yeah. It goes on to blood vessels, and histamine makes blood vessels open up and also become leaky. And that's why the tissue, wherever you've got an allergic reaction, especially your eyes, goes red because there's increased blood flow. It yeah. swells up because there's lots of fluid leaking out of the blood vessels, and it gets really itchy. And so if you take antihistamines, what they do is to lock on to the chemical docking station on all those tissues for histamine, and this stops you actually having some of those reactions. Problem is, you need to get the antihistamines in there before you get any histamine around, because otherwise it's like shutting the door once the horse is bolted. There are some other weedier kind of ways to prevent hay fever symptoms. Um, one of them, uh, there's something called sodium chromoglycate, and you can get this in eye drops, you can get optochrome eye drops. And this is supposed to stabilise those mast cells. It keeps them happier, so they're less likely to pump out this histamine. So they're all sort of how to damp down and sort of prevent the symptoms. And then there's looking at cure. And a few years ago, when I was little and, and had my first sort of knockings with hay fever, I went and got desensitisation. And this is where you get some injections and they inject you with something which you're allergic to, and the idea is that you then get neutralising antibodies which mop up the allergen before it gets near your IgE antibodies and makes you react to it. So it sort of desensitises you. It also pro provokes your immune system to regulate its response better. That's the theory, anyway. They're sort of coming into vogue, and they're, they're quite good in some respects. So now people are beginning to return to the idea of desensitising people. So that's the sort of cure from hay fever. So that's sort of hay fever in a nutshell, really. All right, well, I think we've lost Gaz because he was on a mobile phone there, Chris. But what I'm not clear about is why is it that some people don't get it and some people do? That's the billion, million, trillion, 64,000, <laughs> gazillion dollar question. <laughs> right. Um, we don't know. What, what we do know is that the numbers of allergy cases have skyrocketed. In the last about 10 years, we've seen at least 100%, if not more, increase in the number of people with allergy. And the intensity of those allergies has also got worse. Now, uh, what's usually implicated is this thing called the hygiene hypothesis. So the idea here is that we're living too clean a life and we are exposing ourselves to too few of the normal stimuli for our immune systems. And instead of learning to react against things appropriately, the immune system instead reacts inappropriately and it goes down the pathway that leads to allergy. Um, evidence in, in favour of this is reasonable. There's every reason to suspect that we've got it right in thinking that. It doesn't give us many clues as to how to stop the problem. And in terms of why this should happen in the first place, there are a number of theories around. There's quite an elegant um, example from America where scientists have shown that antibiotics might have something 
to, to or might have a role to play in this. Um, one theory is that when you are uh, little and you get exposed to antibiotics, this wipes out good bacteria in your gut and it makes fungi, which are not sensitive to the antibiotic, and, and yeasts grow too much. And these fungi and yeasts produce chemicals which damage some of the immune cells which are learning to recognise and tolerise, in other words, to not react to things that are generally in your diet and things like that. And because you lose those cells, instead of them being tolerant to the things that are in your everyday life, you react to them as though they're foreign and need to be destroyed. And, and so this theory is, it suggests that taking lots of antibiotics when you're little might provoke that, and it, and it is backed up by evidence. There was a paper in the journal The Lancet a few years back which looked at young children who'd had big doses of antibiotics, and if you're given broad-spectrum antibiotics that are the antibiotic equivalent of Domestos before the age of about six months, you're about 20 times more likely to suffer from allergy later than if you're not. So it does suggest that trying to avoid antibiotics, getting exposed to the right sort of bacteria... And, and perhaps being exposed to some of the allergens from a young age to allow your immune system to mature as it should do is a good thing. Okay, Doug. Um, there's a lot of research to be done, obviously, in that one. I wonder if they ever will find the answer. Well, with the huge burgeoning numbers of cases of allergy, we need to solve this problem because it's becoming a real problem. You've got people with really quite severe cases, things mm. like anaphylaxis, where people have a closing up of their airway and need drugs and admission to hospital to, to save their lives. I mean, this is not trivial. OK, well, the jury is out, as you said earlier on that one. Let's, uh, let's bring Molly in now. Hello, Molly. Hello, Tony. And you've a question about mobile phones, I think. Um, yeah, well, about um, how it is that my daughter goes on to um, India and all that sort of thing. And I want to know how can you, you have, um, speak to somebody without any wires attached anywhere? Yeah, hi Molly. Um, what's going on here is that mobile phones use what are called microwaves, which are a form of radio wave, to communicate between the phone handset and uh, a radio mast, which is nearby. And so when your phone goes near one of these masts, the phone sends a signal to the mast and says, hello, I am phone X, and the mast knows who everyone's phone belongs to. And when someone wants to ring that particular phone, a signal is connected from the exchange to that transmitter, and it then opens a two-way channel of communication. So you have one frequency which sends the messages to the phone, another frequency which is the phone sending your half of the conversation back to the transmitter. And in both the phone and at the other end, those digital signals are turned back into analogue signals, in other words, sound waves, that you can understand. So that's how you have a conversation. The, the interesting thing, though, is that there is a delay on it, and that delay is all to do with the processing time, because it takes time to take the sound waves you're producing, work out what their digital equivalent is, because they're all encoded as a series of noughts and ones, and then to beam those to the transmitter, and then for the transmitter to then send them either via another transmitter or via satellite to you and so there is a delay and that's why you sometimes hear yourself back as a funny sort of echo or you'll say something and the other person will take half a sentence before they react to you ah now you know molly i do thank you very much all right here's another one chris on the subject of mobile phones how does the technology work out the best route for your phone call in any given situation well, this is the cellular architecture, Tony, and that's why they're called cell phones, because people realise that there's only so many frequencies that you can use, because if you start to put lots of phones on the same frequency, they're all going to interfere with each other. Yeah, sure. So yeah. how do you solve that problem? Well, the answer is you have 
cells. So you have a set of transmitters which are arranged in this cellular configuration and when your phone is in a particular cell then it's talking to the transmitter on a certain frequency and that is assigned to that phone and then when you move to a new cell then you are reassigned the uh, communication which is unique to you so that there isn't this overlap. And that's why you're here. When you transfer between different cells, your phone will reconfigure and you'll get those funny did-did-did-did-did-did-did noises coming over your car radio. It's your phone telling the nearest base station, hey, by the way, I'm here in this cell. And that way you can expand enormously the numbers of different frequencies you can use within each area of the country because otherwise you'd only have so many frequencies you could use and you'd run out of them pretty fast and you wouldn't have this situation where there are 60 million plus mobile phones in the UK rising at the rate of about 100% 100 every couple of years. Uh, We'd run out of frequencies, but we haven't because we've got this cellular architecture. How clever is that? That's that's excellent. Um, Now, recent events in Northampton, of course, have made headline news right across the country. I'm referring, of course, to the script Spiridium, which is found in the water over there, had a call from Jane and she says, do you think or do you know if this cryptosporidium would affect her tropical fish? She says she's been using bottled water instead. Is that a good or a bad idea, Chris? Blimey, she's got very, very posh fish, hasn't she? <laughs> They're kept on types of bottled water. My God. I hope she hasn't got a very big tank. Yeah, that must cost a fortune to fill up. <laughs> yeah, but, but is that a good thing or a bad <laughs> thing? Um, I mean, bottled water tends to be purer water, I would suggest, uh, and maybe the fish are missing out, are they? Well, there's a mis- misconception going on there because bottled water isn't actually pure or bottled water, unless it's actually sterile water and it's bottled as such and, and labelled as such, it, it could well be mineral water. And all that means is it's water that's come out of the ground and could have ev- everything and anything in it. It certainly won't have been chlorinated in the same way as your tap water is. So in terms of its potential germ load, bottled water could be worse for you than tap water. Tap water is almost certainly going to be cleaner and more sterile. And you can tell this because if you go to some places where they have those mineral water dispensers, you'll see that they put a kind of cover over the water bottle if it's in sunlight because sometimes if they're left in the sun, you'll see that they grow algae inside the bottle uh-huh. uh, because there are uh, tiny filaments or spores or there are tiny particles of algae in there to start with and they just start to multiply inside the tank and they need sunlight because algae are plants and they'll grow. Um, in terms of cryptosporidium, cryptosporidium is uh, an enteric, so intestinal parasite, um, which it lives in the guts of farm animals and it gets, whenever there's, uh, say, a flood or something, if a, a manure heap or farmer has cleared out a cow shed, if there's a flood and it washes the water into a river, then that can be carried to a, a water distribution plant and it can end up in the drinking water because these things are very, very tiny. They can also resist chlorination processes, for example. If you then drink that water, uh, they can get into you and they take up um, habitation in your guts and they can produce things like diarrhoea, for example. Mm-hmm. So not very pleasant. I don't think that fish are going to be particularly vulnerable for the simple reason that fish have to live in this kind of environment all the time. And I think they're well adapted to fending off these kinds of things and I also think that the crypto probably isn't well adapted to life in the fish. That'd be my thought, my hypothesis. I need to go and check, but I don't think fish are vulnerable to cryptosporidium.
OK, uh, Amrit wants to know what causes turbulence on planes and another question I can't get the name up wants to know what causes wind, <laughs> as in wind in the weather. <laughs> <laughs> OK, those are down to the sun. The sun is injecting huge amounts of heat energy to the planet Earth, so every square metre of the planet's surface gets hit by something like uh, a 1,000 joules of energy every second. So it's like having a one-kilowatt bar fire on every square metre of the Earth's surface. Now, mm. that heat's got to go somewhere, so the, the ground soaks up the heat, the heat then transfers into the overlying air, and air, when it gets warm, of course, wants to go somewhere. It wants to expand and it wants to rise. So warm air rises, and it gets replaced by cold air coming in from the side, and that's where your wind comes from. Now, obviously, you're going to get bits of the Earth heat up more and some that heat up less, so you're going to get pockets of hot air and cold air, and when the plane flies through these pockets, of course, the, the uh, hot air is less dense than the cold air, and so the plane momentarily has a slight adjustment in its speed because it's flying through a less dense medium and it's also going to get slightly less lift potentially in those bits or, or slightly more lift depending on which direction the, the air is moving in. So that's why you get turbulence. It's pockets of, of air of different temperatures. All it's right. also why stars twinkle, funnily enough. And we'll be back next week for more Ask the Naked Scientists. In the meantime, you can catch up with all of the previous editions of this show from our website at nakedscientists.com. And if you've got a question which we haven't answered, then why not submit it also to our forum, nakedscientists.com forward slash forum, and we'll take a look at it for you there. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information... Look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.